Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for man. <laughs> Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the history of men and women in space as we find out why we stopped going to the moon and whether we might ever land on Mars. We'll also be looking at the Irish policy of King James I, which includes the start of the Ulster plantations. And then to end the show, we'll be talking to Donald Fallon about the lamplighters of Phoenix Park and the park's place in Irish history. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we had a Halloween special and found out about Dracula's Irish creator as well as the Irish origins of Halloween. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with Space, a human history. Only 650 people in human history have left Earth and a brilliant new book tells their story. It takes us on a thrilling journey through the history of human space travel and where we are headed to next. 50 years after an astronaut last walked on the moon, the journey is set to begin again and in 2025, the first woman will step on the lunar surface. What will separate these upcoming moonwalkers from the legendary Apollo crews? Does it still take a daring do attitude, superhuman fitness, intelligence plus the right stuff, a fabled grace under pressure? And how will astronauts travel even further to Mars and beyond? Well, space, the human story, reveals all. The book is published in hardback by Century. The author is the astronaut Tim Peake. And Tim, you're very welcome to the show. Hello, Patrick. Great to be talking to you. Well, it's an absolute pleasure and honour to have you on the show. Can you tell us first about your own CV? Because you're retired, although I see you may be coming out of retirement for a new mission, but uh, you were a European Space Agency astronaut and were on the space station. Yes. So I was selected back in 2009 by the European Space Agency. And and actually, my uh, past was quite similar, I guess, to some of those early cosmonauts and astronauts from the Mercury 7 fast jet test pilots. I was a helicopter test pilot. Um, but that's really not the case today. You know, so many more of our astronauts come from different backgrounds as scientists and engineers and computer programmers, medical doctors. Um, And that's why I really wanted to tell this story as to how things have evolved over the years and and how things have changed. But uh, I was very fortunate to spend six months living and working on board the International Space Station back in 2016. And what was the training like? How intense was it? And never mind the physical pressures, how intense were the psychological pressures, not just during the training, but then also going up into space? And there must always have been a doubt about, you know, how safe is this really? There's there's always that doubt. Um, and I think that's why uh, when we select people, we make sure that they've got that 
psychology, that character and personality that can handle that. And, and they've got to be able to demonstrate some evidence of, of working in a, a stressful environment that they can cope under pressure. The selection process certainly tests that. And it's quite fun going through that and seeing the different results from certain certain people. So um, that, that is, is forms part of, I guess, what, what is called the right stuff, if you like, is having that personality and character. But it's so much more. It's about the soft skills today, about teamwork and communication and working together. Um, most of your time on board the space station today is, is as a scientist, as opposed to that raw test flying skill that was needed back in the Mercury program. And the book is a triumph because it tells the story of the men and women who have uh, made that journey. But it also shows the pressures they experienced when they returned because, you know, there must have been a huge you know, change because having achieved such a such a great thing to then readjust to regular life back on Earth also brought its challenges. It really did. And that's why I've loved um, researching and writing the book. It's, it's the human story. And that's what it is. We're ordinary people being asked to do an extraordinary job. And, and certainly for the Apollo astronauts coming back from the moon, um, they were filled with this incredible uh, change in perspective. Although the surface appears to be uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Oh, geez, that's great. Is the lighting halfway decent? Yes, indeed. They've got the flag up now, and you can see the stars and stripes. The coin, the overview effect, this kind of cognitive shift, if you like, having experienced something like that. And it's very hard to articulate into words. I, I think even a poet would struggle to articulate it, let alone someone who's come from a military fast jet test pilot background. Um, and I remember you know, reading about Pete Conrad and and he ended up just saying um, to the, he was asked endlessly as all the Apollo astronauts were, what was it like? I mean, you've just, you know, you've launched on a Saturn V, you've gone to the moon, you've landed, you've walked around, you've driven in a rover, you've come back and somebody just says, what was it like? He ended up just saying, super, I really enjoyed it. And that, that was his kind of humorous way of just coping with, with that difficult situation. How do you articulate that the, the pressure of having to kind of communicate this back to people? Now, today, we realize that that is part of the job. We're ambassadors for space. And we, we try and communicate that message of what we're doing in space and why we're doing it. But it does change everybody. I don't know anyone who's been into space who hasn't been changed by that experience. You know, on a wonderful uh, profile of Yuri Gargarin, the first man in space, the, the cosmonaut. And, you know, in the end, when he died, he had a town in, in Russia named after him. And uh, how, how significant was his achievement? It was hugely significant when you think what was being done back in the early 60s, you know, this this space race. And, and of course, Sputnik had really set uh, the space race on fire and and the Americans were constantly trying to catch up in those early days. So by Yuri Gagarin, uh, 12th of April 1961, there was a human in space had come back down and uh, and was able to tell the story. And, and um, it was uh, unbelievable that we we could do this. Back then with the technology, when you think of the computing power that were in those early rockets, it was just, a, you know, this machine that was launching into orbit and things didn't go completely right for Yuri. And you have to remember as well, they, they hadn't even designed the technology at that point to land. Yuri had to 
bail out. I mean, they were ejected out of the capsule as it was falling from about 20,000 feet. And uh, so it's incredible to think uh, that it wasn't later until later on they actually got the landing bit right. Um, so it was it was hugely significant. And it obviously kicked off the space race that culminated really in uh, 1969 with the moon landing. And you have a wonderful subtitle for the book, The Human Story, because it is very much a, a series of human stories, but it's also the story of men and women. And it's interesting. I think a lot of people would be able to name the first man in space, but wouldn't be able to name the first woman in space, even though that was again was a significant achievement uh, just two years after Yuri Gagarin. That's right. And actually, the, the Soviets got wind of an American program, a NASA program called uh, the Women in Space program of FLATS, First Lady Astronaut Trainees. And it was because of that, and that was back in uh, about 59, that uh, I, I don't think that NASA really was seriously contemplating putting a woman in space at that time, but they were going through the process of investigating it. And the Soviets got wind of this and said, well, we're not going to get beaten. So they selected uh, Valentina Tereshkova and she flew in 63. And so it's very early in the in the space program. But it was then another 20 years um, before Svetlana Savitskaya flew as the second woman in space. So even the Soviets, having kind of broken through that mold and being very progressive in the early stages, there was still a you know much too uh, wide a gap uh, until the, the the next woman in space was uh, was flown. And actually, Svetlana had to do this most remarkable spacewalk where she was asked to do welding and soldering and cutting of metal uh, out on a spacewalk, which looking back now seems barking mad, the kind of level of risk that you're taking when you do that kind of work. And it's also fascinating to look at the, the, the astronauts, the cosmonauts who went into politics then afterwards, including John Glenn, who became a senator in the United States. But Valentina herself, uh, she was on the, the USSR Supreme Soviet. Uh, she became, she was elected to the Duma there. And I think she's still an active politician and proposed the constitutional amendment removing term limits for President Vladimir Putin. So controversial aspects to their later careers as well. That's right. Yes, you know, Valentina is still uh, in the Duma and uh, uh, several uh, Soviet cosmonauts and, and Russian astronauts have, have, or cosmonauts have gone on into politics, as have uh, in America and in Europe as, as well. Um, Pedro Duque, uh, my friend uh, from the European Space Agency, has uh, been uh, the science minister for Spain, for example. So there is that kind of link. And uh, I think perhaps partly that's this desire to kind of do something to change things. When you see Earth from space, it does have this remarkable impact and an effect on you, and it and it gives you a sense of of um, belonging. And, and and you see Earth as as kind of one, and it makes you want to collaborate and communicate and cooperate. And and I think we we work in space in that environment, and so. It's, it's not a huge surprise to me that many people come back and they kind of want to go into politics to try and continue uh, to have some sort of impact towards that. And the book really does capture just how wondrous and astonishing the views of Earth are. But there's also, as part of the daily routine, there are also elements that are just, you know, monotonous as well. It's not all, I think, exciting every day. So how do you deal with that in space? 
I think that that monotony actually helps when you're doing a six month mission. You can't operate at this um, heightened sense of awareness of awe and wonder for for too long. You know, you have to just get up in the morning, have a cup of tea, and get to work. Uh, it's a busy place, and so in some respects, that that uh, sort of normalisation process it, it enables us to work more efficiently. But then every time you go to the cupola window and you look out, and you just got this amazing view, and so there's that this real juxtaposition but, but between that but the, the, you know the book kind of tries to highlight the the human element the flaws and the ups and the downs the emotional journey that that people are, are going on and um you know really ordinary ordinary people going through ordinary lives uh, but being asked to do an extraordinary job i think if you had been you know following the moon landings in the the late 60s and the early 70s you probably would have thought that these were going to be a regular occurrence. Why has it been so long since someone has walked on the moon? You're absolutely right. And I think it was a surprise to everybody. And, and uh, NASA and the Apollo astronauts, certainly. Uh, I, I know Gene Cernan as the last man on the moon, as his uh, autobiography was was called, in 72. He, he didn't want that title for very long. They all thought, well, this is 72, Apollo, you know, this is the last moon landing for a while. But, you know, uh, come the mid 80s, we will be paving a way to Mars uh, or, or establishing a permanent base on, on the surface of the moon. And the reason why it took so long, of course, is partly politics and partly funding, uh, America was enjoying 4.9% of, or NASA was, 4.9% of their GDP on the NASA budget. That's a, an extortionate amount of money. It's huge. So NASA doesn't have anywhere like that budget today. It's, it's more like 0.4% of GDP, and, and still that's a lot of money. So you can only do so much with that money. And the, the as soon as we decided to build a space station in low Earth orbit, that uh, eats up your annual budget just in terms of building, maintaining and operating a space station. And that's what we've been doing over the years and certainly for the last 20 years plus um, on the International Space Station. So you don't have any money left over for an exploration program on top of that. And it's only now that the ISS is coming towards retirement uh, and commercial companies are looking to take over low Earth orbit, if you like, that the national governments and, and space agencies have got the resources now to go back to the moon. And, you know, rereading the stories, it is quite, you know, mad how, how you know, how they did manage the moon landings, you know, back in the, in the 60s and the 70s, given that, you know, they didn't have the tiny computers and, and technology that you have today. To do it on 1960s technology is really, you know, it's mind-blowing. It is mind blowing. I think, again, looking back, sometimes you can laugh at the things that we didn't know back then. Uh, trying to do a spacewalk with with no handholds outside your spacecraft, uh, you know, that's ridiculous. But of course, they didn't know uh, how to do spacewalks uh, back then. And um, landing on the surface of the moon, that that means that how audacious was that? But to do it with so little computing power, um, ultimately, it came down to brilliant mathematicians and engineers who were working all of this out and, and quite spectacularly getting it right. Um, I, I guess from that point of view, it's just uh, Newtonian physics, really, in terms of orbital dynamics. Um, and, and we've kind of uh, are reliant today on, on computer navigation and, and communications. So I think it's fascinating to look back and see what they were able to achieve without that level of, of electronic sophistication. And what do you think is the limit on our ambition now? How far do you think we will be able to go in the 21st century? And will there be a, a man or a woman on Mars? 
I do think there will be a, a man or a woman and both on, on Mars by the end of this century. I think that we'll actually have a laboratory on the surface of Mars uh, permanently occupied as well as on the surface of the moon by the end of this century. That's very much within uh, what is achievable today. We have the technology to do this. There aren't really many big hurdles to overcome. We know there'll be radiation exposure. We know that there are communication issues and, and, and food and water uh, is clearly a challenge but we know how to overcome these. So that's definitely within our capabilities right now. Then there's kind of a quantum leap between Mars and the next step. If we really want to go, for example, to the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, which are really interesting, liquid oceans beneath icy crusts, the kind of journey time goes from being potentially six to seven months to six to seven years. So that is really a step for another century, I think. Do you have a particularly favourite astronaut or cosmonaut from the from the history of all of these stories? Uh, I wonder, like, for example, the movie The Right Stuff seems to have influenced so many who later went on into into space exploration. And I wonder, is there is there one story that really resonated with you growing up? It's a bit like asking who your favourite child is. It's too difficult to to choose, really. There's so many inspirational people who've done amazing things. Um, I think from a test pilot perspective, I've got got such admiration for Neil Armstrong um, and uh, Bruce McCandless, who did the first untethered spacewalk. Um, But more bringing that forward, people like Peggy Whitson have been hugely in, inspirational as well in terms of their professionalism and uh, and help and support. But um, uh, I, I think somebody I'd love to have met who I didn't get to meet was Pete Conrad, uh, and uh, you know he was the third person to walk on the moon. And the reason why I say Pete Conrad is I think he just brings this wonderful sense of humour and warmth uh, as well as professionalism. And and he was just such a colourful character. I think he would have been an absolute delight to have worked with. And of course, there was the also fascinating news last month that uh, you may be coming out of retirement at the age of 51 and maybe uh, part of it, there's talk of a, a special UK, all UK mission to the space station. Yes, um, well, I have to say I never really put myself into retirement. I don't think that's a word other people use. I, I took a step back from the European Space Agency just because I wanted to embark on other projects um, with so much going on in space at the moment. But it's really exciting for the UK. They've signed an agreement with Axiom Space looking at a commercially sponsored mission where we could get British astronauts potentially back to the International Space Station. Um, and uh, that's really exciting. So I'm delighted to be you know, working with UK Space Agency and ESA and Axiom and seeing if uh, if we can make this mission a, a possibility. But there's certainly been no crew assigned just yet and there are several steps to overcome before we actually get the mission into place. And why should we be involved in space travel and space exploration? Is it because uh, setting that ambition forces us to develop new technologies and advance our, our civilization and, and our world? Or is it that we are making important discoveries being in space. I think there are many, many answers to that questions on different levels. I mean, from a scientific point of view, and that's primarily where I come from, that kind of angle. There's so much that we can learn from space. It's a completely new environment. We're discovering new drugs for diseases, new vaccines for viruses, new techniques for making metal alloys, uh, all sorts of things, solar panel efficiency, carbon dioxide removal systems. Uh, so it's the science and research we're doing in space is amazing. And we want to be part of that community. We want to be at the cutting edge 
edge of technology and engineering and science. Then there's inspiration for our, our younger generations, which I think is really important. Space is a growth economy and, uh, you know, we're doing so much more. It's, it's part of our critical national infrastructure. It touches our daily lives. So for the UK to get behind in space, I think will be hugely damaging. And then there's the economic argument. You know, we get about a 10 to 1 return on our investment with the European Space Agency. So it's it's jobs, it's the economy. It's a, the space industry has been a growth industry for many, many years and is still set to be so, certainly for the next uh, few decades. So I think it's really important on a number of different levels that the UK is as active as we are right now in space. And a final question about your emotions when you're when you're traveling up and when you're traveling down again. How do you deal with the nerves and how significant are the nerves? Uh, the nerves have to be dealt with beforehand. And I think it's OK to be nervous. It's OK to be apprehensive. And But then you address it. You think, what, what am I afraid of and why am I afraid of it? And what can I do about it? And that's a really important thing. Do everything you can do about it. And then you're left with the little package of, of risk that you just have to, you know, satisfy yourself with. I'm happy to take that risk. And so on, on launch day, it's excitement. It's adrenaline. You know, you've, you've dealt with the nerves. You just want to get to space. You want to go and do the job you've you've trained to do. Um, but I think it's important to uh, you know accept that it's, it's only normal to be nervous. And certainly going out on a spacewalk, you know, yeah, it's a bit nerve wracking dropping, <laughs> dropping down out the hatch there and seeing Earth 400 kilometers beneath you. But you focus that uh, into, uh, into a positive experience. You, it gives you a heightened sense of awareness, fast dis- decision making process. And, and it's important to you know not let that control you, but for you to be able to control your fears. Well, it's a wonderful new book, Space, the Human Story, written by someone who knows what he is talking about, Tim Peake. The book is published in hardback by Century. And Tim, it's been an absolute honour and pleasure uh, talking to you tonight. Likewise, Patrick. Thank you so much. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. This Saturday, the 11th of November, Professor Claire Jackson, Honorary Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Cambridge and winner of the Wolfson Prize for her book Devil Land, England Under Siege, 1588-1688, will be in Dublin to deliver the prestigious Farmley House Lecture on King James I and Ireland. And to preview this event, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Jackson to the show tonight. Uh, Claire, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I'm calling him King James the First, but of course he has two names because he's James the Sixth of Scotland and James the First of, of England and Ireland. So explain the confusion over these different uh, titles. I don't think there's confusion, but I think maybe the titles is one of the things that actually motivated me to write about him because I have this sort of default tick when I work in England, when colleagues go James the First, and I immediately go Sixth and First, and they look at me slightly oddly. And uh, actually, my American publishers keep saying James One, and I keep going, no, no, James Six and One. Um, in response, he was King James the Sixth of Scotland. Uh, he was crowned in 1567, uh, aged 13 months. He remained King James the Sixth of Scotland for uh, the rest of his reign which was one of the longest reigns of any king in Scottish history. Um, and then in 1603, he succeeded to Elizabeth's crown, which was the crowns of uh, England and Ireland and sort of euphemistically France. They still kept France in the title. So he became King James the Sixth of Scotland and King James the First. And you're working, as you say there, on a new uh, book on him, a new biography. And I think you're planning to publish in time for the 400th anniversary of his death. 
It's definitely an unmovable deadline, yes. <laughs> Very good. So you've talked about how you got intrigued by him. He is such a fascinating figure, given that he is the person who succeeded, you know, the very long reign of Queen Elizabeth I, given that he did have that interest in witchcraft. You know, it's still the time of Shakespeare. And it's very significant in terms of his contribution to English, Scottish and indeed Irish history. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, one of the challenges of trying to condense this into one book is that it's sort of almost each chapter would be easily a book on its own. Uh, so Ireland is, you know, one fascinating dimension, but there are just so many others. There's also things like, you know, his, his overseeing the King James Bible project, uh, as you say, witchcraft. He writes a lot on political theory. Uh, he becomes very involved in theological disputes. Um, he's a sort of mad hunter who has a sort of wonderful uh, wordsmith sort of capacity to write about animals and nature. So, Yes, it's a challenge, but it's a really sort of vibrant, exciting reign to be looking at. So let's maybe talk about some of the Irish dimensions to his to his reign, because the Ulster plantations begin on his watch. And I'm wondering, you know, is there, does this mark a new direction in uh, British policy towards Ireland? I think so. I mean, I think he has uh, there's a prehistory of his interest in Ireland. Uh, again, you know, one of the tendencies, particularly in England, is to assume that he's just this new king that arrives in 1603 and he's inexperienced or whatever. But I mean, you know, he's been on the on the Scottish throne for 40 years and 20 years as an adult monarch. And in that period, he's um, had negotiations and with certain you know Irish leaders at the time. He's also had to sort of figure out his own approach to regional governance. He has had some. Uh, admittedly kind of unsuccessful plantation attempts in um, the remoter parts of Scotland. Uh, But he certainly has an interest in how you... Uh, sort of relate the the core to the periphery. How uh, Scotland is a is a fairly weak monarchy in terms of its infrastructure, say compared to the English uh, crown. So you know he has a back history of interest in multiple monarchy. He spent a lot of time thinking about uh, what will you know what, what will happen when hopefully he succeeds Elizabeth in in a bloodless way. Um, and certainly when he comes to uh, think about plantation in 1609, I mean, so it, it is largely reactive. It is a response to the, the flight of the earls in 1607. But uh, those around him, like uh, the Attorney General, so, or Solicitor General, um, Francis Bacon, say, you know, this is, this is different, actually. This is being done peaceably now. This is not Elizabethan conquest. So I would see a difference. And I would also see a difference in religious terms, because a lot of his time as King of Scotland has been spent balancing different religious um, elements within his kingdom. He is always provoking Elizabeth I's ire for not adopting a stricter, um, more repressive policy towards leading Catholic earls in Scotland. But he finds them a very helpful way, not only of um, sort of imposing royal governance on on more remote areas, but also being a kind of counterweight to some of the hardcore Protestant elements at the English court. And I think, you know, I think he was anticipating a similar kind of relationship with uh, controversial sort of power brokers like the Earl of Tyrone. Uh, But that was obviously much more controversial for English um, former Elizabethan governors on the ground in Ireland to stomach. And what's extraordinary is that the Ulster Plantation you know, dramatically changes the future of Ireland. It changes the demography, it changes, it has a huge religious impact, it affects the economy, you know, it transforms Ireland and yet it doesn't always feature very significantly in works on King James. No, that's one of the, that was again one of my motivations for sort of, uh, you know, um, 
thinking about Ireland and James. I mean, James does not set foot in Ireland, so, you know, one can't over-exaggerate this. He gives lots of good advice throughout his life, not all of which he sticks to. So in Basilican Doron, his advice manual for his son, Prince Henry, that's first published in 1599, he says, you know, when, when you accede to all of these crowns, he, he's been quite ill in 1598, and he's worried that, you know, he might not succeed. So he's giving Henry advice. You know, go to each of your kingdoms at least once every three years. You know, hear from people directly on the ground. And, you know, it's terrific advice. And if he'd followed it, you know, it, might, it would have been a very interesting what if. Um, but yes, I mean, he, he really does take a personal interest in this project. And it's one of many projects that sort of come across his desk. But he has this sort of proprietorial uh, personal investment in a lot of the things he writes about Ireland. But you look down a lot of particularly English sort of accounts of James's rule and you know the, the references to Ulster to Ireland are often really quite minimal I think maybe one at the same time they shouldn't exaggerate the huge transformation of the plantation or, or attribute too much to James certainly you know a lot of the Presbyterian Protestant influx comes really in the 1640s um, you know James is really more concerned to you know establish um, civilization as he sees it and sort of commercial prosperity so there's a lot of you know, Catholic um, estate owners who he wants to work with. And it's interesting when the State Papers Office opens in Whitehall in 1619, James himself is astonished by all the paperwork that has been generated by Ireland, mainly to do with the plantations. Yes, absolutely. And so much of it comes through him, really. I mean, he's the one who is liaising with, you know, the sort of the guilds in London trying to sort of raise money. Um, you know, there isn't, there is a creation of the sort of uh, almost a sort of an Irish office for this paper. But yeah, I mean, he is taken aback by the sheer scale of the undertaking and um, the amount of paperwork he generated. And I think maybe that's partly why they they've, were later calendars as calendar to state paper Ireland. I mean, maybe they've been too segmented in English historians imaginations, you know, sort of almost like sort of colonial papers for Virginia or something. This is just a sort of an external project. But I think if you'd been in Whitehall in the 1610s, this was very much part of ruling this multiple monarchy. And it's a story, I think, that resonates for a modern audience. And I think people who do go to Farmley on Saturday and you can get tickets on eventsbrite.ie and, and as it's part of the, the OPW's 2023 cultural programme at Farmley House. But I think they'll find a story that is relevant and that does resonate uh, for audiences and readers today. I hope so. I mean, I think James is somebody who does uh, come to the English crown with uh, a vision of Anglo-Scottish Union, that's, that, that is, you know, Ireland sometimes appears almost on a kind of lexical limb in some of that early discussions of Anglo-Scottish Union. But he is very taken aback when he finds this falls on stony ground in, in England. But certainly his vision of sort of an imperial monarchy does extend uh, to include Ireland and People, again, like Bacon commentators, see later see plantation as being of sort of equal importance to the union project. But also he's someone who, um, you know, sort of can cope with asymmetries and, and ambiguities and is, is very flexible. I mean, it has been suggested that some of his rhetoric of union was deliberately sort of expansionist and ambitious because these were, after all, two countries, England and Scotland, that had traditionally been enemies, you know, that had been independent with very different sort of foreign alliances and... Um, trajectories, separate parliaments, separate legal codes, separate state churches, but under one monarch. And, you know, in a way that could be resonant because that could be, you know, were Scotland to gain independence in the short to medium term, that would presumably be the type of uh, constitutional arrangement that, that, you know, that might transpire. And I think, you know, the, the constitutional future of these islands is, is not certain at the moment. And the geopolitics um, of the last 
decade and sort of decades to come is, is something that is, is a, I think, a contemporary preoccupation of all of ours. And in your new study, how are you going to deal with the tricky, a thorny uh, question of a sexuality? Because that's something that has uh, divided previous uh, biographers and historians who have studied his life. Well, I hope I'm not going to do it with <laughs> some of the kind of very sort of tittering, quite prurian approaches that um, previous historians, some historians have sort of, well, clearly he's just asexual or clearly, uh, you know, this is irrelevant. Um, I think I just see it as, I mean, James writes a huge amount about everything. I mean, he writes about his loves he, as much as he writes poetry, as much as he writes about sort of constitutional preoccupations. Um, so I, I've just sort of tried to integrate it along with all of his other preoccupations. One of the things I want to sort of get across is what a fantastic communicator he is. I mean, not all of those communications work. I mean, but he really is a king who wants to communicate with his subjects, whether it's uh, primarily in print. I mean, he's obviously fascinated by the growing medium of print. Um, and, you know, his letters are just so vivid and uh, I want to kind of reintegrate them. And why was England in such a difficult state in this period? Because in your in your uh, award-winning book, Devilland, looking at, you know, that period between the, the Spanish Armada in 1588 and the, the invasion of William of Orange in 1688, that 100-year period, there were real question marks, weren't there, over what would be the future of England and even some people, as you talk about in the introduction, seeing England England as a failed state. Yeah, and I think what I was trying to get across, I mean, it's a polemical argument, and I don't make any kind of apologies for that. It is a partisan argument, but I wanted to emphasize themes of vulnerability, instability, fragility, because I suppose I was sort of working against a long tendency to see some sort of teleological march towards parliamentary democracy, religious toleration, commercial prosperity, global empire. And I'm thinking that doesn't resonate with how I think contemporaries saw the world around them, which I think was much more contingent and uncertain. Uh, the Counter-Reformation across Europe is making huge strides. So at the beginning of the period, uh, the amount of land sort of occupied by Protestant states covers about half of continental Europe. And by the end of the period, it's only 20%. So England begins to look like, you know, a, 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 a sort of small minority of countries, you know, inhabited by heretics. Um, and so much depends on the dynasty that is ruling at the time. So, um, you know, sort of uh, Elizabeth I's biological bankruptcy, as I put it, of the Tudors, uh, you know, brings the Stuarts to, to the throne. They are a foreign dynasty. And one of the themes of Devil Land is that they are seen as a foreign Scottish dynasty that can't always be trusted to act in England's interests. Each of those Stuart monarchs has a Catholic consort. So Queen Anna starts as a sort of Danish Lutheran, but covertly converts to Catholicism in the 1590s. And thereafter, each Stuart monarch has a, has a Catholic consort. And that brings with them different confessional alliances and sort of diplomatic entanglements. Uh, and then finally, the Williamite Revolution, as, as people know all too well in Ireland, occurs when uh, James VII and second, so seventh of Scotland and second of England, comes to the throne uh, and then produces a male heir. And that sort of produces in English minds the prospect of a never-ending Catholic dynasty and potentially England's reintegration into the continental Catholic fold, but more as a sort of puppet state of Louis XIV. And I'm fascinated by the fact that, you know, under James, there seems to be more toleration for Catholicism, or certainly he doesn't seem to have been as, as openly hostile as other monarchs. 
No, and I think that's one of the tensions that you see playing out on the ground in Ireland. He is very aware in 1603 that um, you know, this is a post-war situation after the Nine Years' War, and his view is that religion is to be gained, religious change is to be gained little by little. It's to be promoted by the word, not by the sword. And in some ways, he's a disappointment to the, to the large majority of Irish Catholics. You know, he is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, um, who'd been executed on Elizabeth's orders in 1587. There was widespread anticipation that his accession would bring toleration or, or even a change of religion. That becomes clear, you know, that's not going to happen. James you know, is, a, is, a, is a committed Calvinist, but he is deeply skeptical about religious persecution um, and the potential for religion to be used as a fraudulent cloak for sort of political subversion. So I think instinctively he is very much an ecumenicist and, uh, you know, would prefer uh, some form of sort of um, at least peaceful coexistence. But, you know, he, he also is surrounded by uh, quite fervent Puritans in England. Um, events like the failed gunpowder plot put enormous pressure on him to adopt much more rigid stances. And actually, his, his, even his response to that is frustrating to a lot of English Protestants uh, in that, you know, he devises an oath of allegiance that he wishes to be levied on Catholics so that the majority can, as he sees it, assert their loyalty to him uh, without compromising you know, the Pope's spiritual um, superiority over their consciences. And it definitely seems to be an age of paranoia because people are not just worried about foreign invasion. There is also deep suspicion about those around them and whether they can be trusted. Absolutely. And I think that was what I was really trying to convey throughout the book. I mean, some of the, the sort of England under siege, I mean, some of it is mental siege. Um, uh, you know, some of it is sort of projected uh, fears. So uh, an attempt always to see the past sort of manifesting itself in the present. I mean, when William of Orange lands in Devon on the 5th of November, sort of 1688, there's huge sort of providential significance attached to the fact that's 100 years after 1588. It's the same date as the failure of the gunpowder plot. There's this very sort of providentialist framework that people sort of instinctively reach for. But at the same time, you know, England is, is, is a fairly open and its state and its infrastructure is uncertain to foreignize, quite weak. So it always offers this opportunity for sort of foreign influence or intervention or as foreign policy, potentially even invasion. And is it just a happy historical coincidence that you have the Spanish Armada in 1588 and William of Orange's evasion in 1688? Like, is that just uh, a coincidence of those dates or is there anything more significant there? I think it, I mean I think it is a coincidence of those dates in that uh, had James uh, the seventh and second's wife Mary of Medina not produced a son in June 1688, um, that sort of short-term impetus for the sort of political nation to invite William to intervene wouldn't have happened. But on the other hand, um, for those who want to see events in a sort of providential framework, the fact that you know uh, Philip the second sent a Catholic armada that fails in 1588, but this Protestant armada uh, succeeds, you know that that. That is sort of powerful rhetoric used by uh, Protestant defenders of William's actions. And what do you think is really at the heart of this? Is it really genuine religious fervour and belief? Or is it that these are power games being played out and religion is almost like the excuse that can be used for these power plays? (laughs) That's a a million dollar question. Um, I think there's there's both. I think the difficulties um, of 
the, the fallout from the you know the Reformation is is so vast, and the the the, the extent to which um, continental Europe is consumed by confessional warfare across the Thirty Years' War uh, between 1618 and 1648 shows you know the the real difficulty that all of these powers are. Uh, experiencing, and I mean, in a way, the counter argument to Devil Land is well, at least the British Isles weren't um, directly involved in the devastation of the, of the Thirty Years' War, but James and his family were directly involved in it. I mean, the, the hostilities are sparked when his daughter and son in law, uh, as Protestants, take the, the, the uh, crown of Bohemia uh, and then provoke a revolt, and then the Habsburg powers take over. So, um, you know, I think it is. The, uh, it, it is a very, very vexed period trying to work out the geopolitics and the confessional complexities arising from the Reformation. And your work has always been hugely praised for being scholarly, but also extremely readable. And how difficult do you find that as a as a challenge in telling these very complex stories, but in an accessible way? I do think it's straightforward, but I think it's absolutely essential. I think the more complicated... Uh, history becomes the more responsibility people have to try and make it intelligible. I mean, simply, I think that's one of the reasons why perhaps the 17th century hasn't always been studied in the same sort of, or gained the same sort of popular traction, say, in English popular culture as the Tudors. I mean, it's a fairly straightforward story of six wise. Um, whereas I think people have been off put by, say, the complexities of the 1640s and the 1650s. But you know, I, I do believe that, um, you know, whether whether in universities or on podcasts or on television programs or in newspaper columns, um, you know, we, we have a we have a duty really to tell our history as accurately and as accessibly as we possibly can. Well, I think you've whetted the appetite of our listeners for your lecture taking place this Saturday at eventbrite.ie. The talk is Ireland under James VI and First, an illustrated talk by Professor Claire Jackson of the University of Cambridge. It's presented by the OPW as part of the 2023 cultural programme at Farmley House. And Claire, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about this age of paranoia and the life and legacy of James VI and First. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. The Phoenix Park in Dublin holds a special place in the collective memory of Irish people, from the assassinations of 1882 and the destruction of several imperial monuments to the arrival of Douglas Hyde as Ireland's first president and Pope John Paul II's 1979 visit. It has been the centre of our society for centuries. But the park is also part and parcel of daily life for many Dubliners, none more so than the Flanagan family, who have been lighting the gas lamps within its walls since 1890. And in a new book, historian Don. Donald Fallon speaks to brothers Frank and James Flanagan, lamplighters of the park, to give us a snapshot of a fading tradition and a unique history of one of Ireland's most beloved places. The book is called The Lamplighters of the Phoenix Park, A Unique History of One of Ireland's Most Famous Places. It's published in hardback by Hatchet Books Ireland. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Donald Fallon, to the show tonight. Donald, you're very welcome. Great to be here. Thank you, Patrick. And I want to begin by congratulating you because last week you were awarded the Medal for Outstanding contribution to public discourse by the oldest student society in the world, <laughs> the HIST, the College Historical Society yeah. in Trinity. And it's because of your you know, incredible contribution in your books, uh, podcasts, walking tours, lectures and so on. So congratulations. Yeah, it meant an awful lot. And of course, you would know more about the HIST than me. I didn't go to Trinity College, but Trinity, like the Phoenix Park, is just a part of this city, isn't it? Uh, every time I walk through it, I can just feel 
uh, that great sense of history in the place. So yeah, for someone who went to the, the, the College of James Joyce and Miles Nagopolin, you know, well, so did be, I. <laughs> be, yeah, to be recognised by by the Hist was a was a great honour, and yeah, they totally caught me by surprise as well. And I think a well deserved recognition because you know your love of Dublin is so clear, and you've made a, such a huge contribution to bringing that history alive, to to reminding us of parts of the history that perhaps uh, have been forgotten and that need to be remembered. Yeah, and public historians need the public to play along, you know, to some extent, and and this book is kind of typical of that where the Flanagan brothers who I only met for the first time late last year agreed to tell me their story so if I've managed to do well as a, as a public historian in Dublin it's because the people of Dublin respond very well to, to public history and they want their story told and they want to tell their story Well talk to us about this remarkable story then because as you say it involves the Flanagan family going back you know more than a century it's the story of the Phoenix Park also the story of, of Chesterfield Avenue in that park Yeah I mean the last book I wrote was about 12 streets and they were very different streets they ranged from the middle class Victorian townships to what had been the worst of Dublin slumdom. And in a sense, this is the story of one road. And when you enter the Phoenix Park, through, those, you know, through Parkgate Street and you come onto Chesterfield Avenue, the entire story of Ireland is there. I mean, for many people like me who have a long history of family in the British Army, you have the Wellington Testimonial, you know, which is a, a reminder of Ireland's place in an empire. You have the little cross in the ground that marks the site of the assassinations or, or the murders, depending what one wants to call them. You have that beautiful gap in the, in the hedges where you see Oris and Uchtaran, the centre of Irish democracy. You can see the papal cross in, in the distance. Uh, and then you have the air of the place, the feeling of the place. And for me, the atmosphere is in those Victorian gas lamps. And there are certain cities that still utilise these lamps in a big way. In Berlin, for example, more than half the gas lamps in the world are there. If the tram captures the feeling of San Francisco, gas lamps capture the feeling of Berlin. But in Dublin, on Chesterfield Avenue, we encounter this just beautifully lit, atmospheric, Victorian place. And it feels like nowhere else in Dublin, doesn't it? And we owe a huge debt to the Duke of Ormond, who played a major role in its design and development. And, you know, Dubliners are obsessed with that idea that until the Act of Union, we were the second city of the British Empire. But we sometimes have to look a little bit further afield than London to see the influences in what shaped Dublin. And for the Duke of Ormond, I mean, Ormond Quay comes to mind. He changed the way we felt about the Liffey. You know, that building should face onto the Liffey. He'd been in exile in Paris And it's a really continental feeling about Ormond's Dublin in a lot of ways. So Dublin isn't just a city that was shaped by its connections to Britain. I mean, the wide streets commissioners were operating here uh, long before even Houseman developed Paris. Dublin is a continental European city too. And the Phoenix Park, that enclosed deer hunting park as he wanted it, uh, was part of Ormond's legacy to Dublin. And, you know, Morris Craig had a great line about, about Ormond. He said, when he stepped off the boat, when he came back from exile, the Renaissance had arrived in Ireland, which just puts it so beautifully. Like, it is remarkable and almost unbelievable that one family have been involved in, and that this is the Flanagan story and a wonderful story of, of inherited knowledge and traditions and stories being passed from yeah. one generation to the other. And I just find it extraordinary that this family can still maintain these lamps And it's becoming harder and harder because the parts are harder to get. You know, the lads now have to go to India, for example, to get pieces for these gas lamps. So the the, the family scale that's been passed down through the ages and the ability to keep these things working is extraordinary. And they're up against all kinds of challenges. I mean, the the war uh, in Ukraine or the war on Ukraine, we might say, uh, that drove up the price of gas, for example. There's been a real move in Berlin towards replacing these gas lamps with LED lamps that look the same. And that's a good question, you know, is it the, if it looks the same and if it's, you know, if it's in the same frame, 
what's the harm? But I would say there's something, UNESCO have talked about the, the heritage quality of these gas lamps. I don't think you can fake it, you know. But the, the skill set to look after them, to repair them, uh, is still there. Frank is 92 years of age and he's still working. I don't want to give anyone the government ideas there about the pension age, but, you know, Frank is 92, James is 79. But these guys just have extraordinary skill sets. Uh, watching them work with their hands, all that is fading in this country. That ability to do that kind of work is disappearing. So to capture it at a moment in time felt very important. It goes back to their grandfather, uh, 1890, big year for the Phoenix Pact, the year Bohemians Football Club were born in the park. And today their grandkids are doing it. So there is a five-generation run uh, in the Flanagan family that have been doing this. Which is so how many gas lamps are we talking about? There are more than 200. More than 200. Primarily Chesterfield Avenue, the roads immediately around us. They've gone electric in the Auris, for example. Uh, but the lads are in and out of the Auris all the time. And they've got great stories about the various presidents. Frank actually worked uh, as a, a young gardener for Douglas Hyde, or Douglas de Hida. And I said, what do you remember about Douglas Hyde? And he says, well, not a whole lot because he wouldn't speak English to me. <laughs> Douglas would only speak in Irish and Frank didn't have the words to reply. But yeah, they go into the Auris where the lamps are electric and uh, Michael D. Higgins brought them into the Auris this week, which I thought was a, a lovely little touch. But Chesterfield Avenue is where you really get that very distinctive glow of the gas lamp. And it's, in, it's brilliant the way you're able to tell the history of Ireland and a changing country through the Phoenix Park as well, because as you say, so much of the history is tied up in it, whether it is the, the, the invincible murders in the 1880s, uh, the various presidents who have lived there or uh, papal visits or uh, various state events. Like it, it's, it's very much interwoven with the story oh, of a changing Ireland. Totally. And, you know, everyone is familiar on one level with the, well, what happened there in 1882, whether, whether they realise it or not. You know, that, that great uh, George Desmond Hodnett song, the Dubliners made it famous, uh, Take Her Up to Monto. It talks about the assassinations. It wasn't very sensible to tell on the invincibles. They stick up for their principles day and night. Everyone's aware on some level that there were murders in the park that changed the course of political history. But Frank Flanagan's grandmother was working in the park uh, on the night that happened in what he calls the unders or the undersecretary's office. And she remembered the carnage in the park, the policemen arriving on the scene, horses just running frantically around the place. So when you have someone like Frank at 92 who has a reservoir of memory, that goes right back to 1882 and the assassinations. That's just incredible. And the ghost stories that children in the area were raised on. He talks, talks about Burke and Cavendish and how people would swear they would see them walking in the night up the middle of Chesterfield Avenue. The headless horseman, of course, Lord Goff, whose statue was decapitated in the park. So the folklore and the mythology around the park is amazing too. And their one community, Black Horse Avenue, go to the other side of the park where you have Chapelizet. That's Sheridan left a new country. There's a whole different community and folklore over that part of the, the park from where the lads are. So yeah, you're, you're using one family and their contribution to the space to tell that broader picture of the Phoenix Park and indeed of Irish society. And it's incredible what insight we get from their memory and, uh, and the stories that they've passed on and that, for example, even during the Second World War, the fact that, you know, yeah the park is being hit by bombs. Yeah, and I think we've, a, we've a, a, a tendency to play down the Second World War in this country. You know, Louis McNeese had that great story. He was in Dublin on, on the day the war broke out, probably in MacDade's, maybe in the palace. And he says that people here weren't talking about the war. They were debating the correct version of Dublin Street Songs. <laughs> he felt the whole thing seemed very removed from the lives of Irish people. Well, it did until bombs started falling. You know, it was very real uh, when Belfast was hit in the Blitz. It was very real when the South Circular Road was hit uh, and bombs landed in the Phoenix Park. And Frank talks really movingly about his neighbours on Black Horse Avenue. Terrified, you know, uh, an elderly man who lived alone, banging on the door to come into their home. Everyone sheltering, hearing the Luftwaffe planes overhead and thinking, 
this might be it. This might be the end for us. And going into the park the next morning and, and seeing uh, the destroyed home of one park worker and the bomb, or what was left of the bomb lodged in a tree. And yeah, as he says himself, I mean, the news was heavily censored here, of course. People knew there was a war happening on the continent. But when you saw the remnants of a Luftwaffe bomb in what was essentially your front garden for Frank, the Phoenix Park, uh, that made it all very real. Uh, it's a brilliant new book, The Lamplighters of the Phoenix Park, a unique history of one of Ireland's most famous places, published in hardback by Hatchet Books Ireland. Uh, the author is Donald Fallon, who is there getting these wonderful oral histories from James Flanagan and Frank Flanagan. And uh, Donald, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.